Welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Tom, welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Thank you very much. Great to have you here. Uh, old majestic colleague, but um, I'm not sure everyone else will know that. So in 30 seconds or less, can you tell us who you are, what you do, and why you're qualified to talk about what we're going to talk about? No problem. So when I finished my first degree a long time ago, um, I started working for Majestic. I spent just sort of 10 years working for them, managed to achieve my WST diploma. And I was always quite interested in the scientific side of winemaking. So I went and got a second degree in viticulture and enology. And I went and worked in New Zealand for a while, then three and a half years in the south of France, and gradually came back to England. And I now manage around 90 hectares of vines in the southeast of England. Cool. That, that was under 30 seconds as well. No one ever does it in that time. That's good. Well, that's concise. I like it. Um, well, there's loads of stuff I obviously want to ask you about um, various viticultures, but I think it's probably interesting to start with a management point of view. Um, how do you manage labour in the vineyard? How many people do you manage? Um, and you know, what kind of techniques uh, or tips do you have for managing labour and people? Well, it's quite a complicated thing to answer, really, um, because your labour demands change quite dramatically throughout the season. So when you're growing vines, quite often when a specific job needs doing, you need to do it all in a very short period of time. So you might need to have quite a lot of bodies on the ground for a short period of time, and then you may go several weeks without having anybody there. Um, so in my experience, the majority of the labour is contract labour, um, and really in the growing season, when the, when everything's a bit more active, you'll have a more permanent, smaller team there all the time doing various different tasks, um, specifically the driving and things like that. Um, but the, the labour demands can vary from one or two people per day in the middle of the winter to 90 to 100 at harvest, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah. So where do you get these people from? Where do you contract them from? Um, yeah, how do you how do you, how do you employ a hundred people suddenly? <laughs> you prepare for it, so you you have a you have a reasonable idea of when you're when you're going to have your labour demands basically. Um, so you can prepare for it from that point of view. You, data collection is quite important, so you've got a good idea of how long it takes to do certain tasks and how long people take to do certain tasks. So you can pretty much work out the number of bodies or the number of hours that you're going to need people working for you. Um, and then in terms of accessing the labour, there's quite a few different labour suppliers in the UK that supply vineyard labour. And you can also use people that a lot of tasks. You don't necessarily need to have people that are particularly experienced in vineyards. There's a lot of people that you can train and supervise quite rapidly. Um, so it's a bit different. Um, I use various various local people based near to the vineyard and people a little bit further away and we do get some labor from uh, casual labor for harvest and stuff from other parts of europe okay so how has brexit affected that i mean i know we haven't i know we haven't fully left the eu yet um but i mean how do you think the harvest or any of the the springtime stuff's going to be affected this year in terms of european labor uh, i'll be honest with you the majority of the work throughout 
the season. The, the, the people that do it are all based in the UK, so it's not seasonal labour for that kind of stuff. Uh, harvest is a bit more complicated. That could be an issue. Um, where you, and It's not just an issue for vineyards. It's an issue for apple growers, soft food growers. We're all kind of in the same boat where there is a, a lot more casual labour coming in for short periods of time. So I guess it's a question of wait and see. Um, could be complicated, but I hope not. How do you minimise labour in the vineyard? Um, what machinery do you use? Uh, what have you tried and hasn't worked? Um, is there anything now that you couldn't do without that you uh, wondered how you ever managed before? That's a good question. Cheers. So in terms of UK viticulture, we're probably a little bit behind the rest of Europe in terms of mechanical operations. Um, there's a lot more machinery available in Europe than there is in the UK, uh, but it's slowly coming over here. The, the problem is a lot of the suppliers are wary of bringing in lots of European equipment because generally vineyard equipment is quite expensive and they don't want to take the risk of having well, not being able to sell it to vineyards in the UK, as it were. So it's a bit of, a, bit of trial and error with various bits of vineyard equipment. Um, the most interesting things, or the, well, the most useful things I actually find are the larger sprayers, so you can spray a bigger area in a shorter period of time. Um, all-terrain vehicles are uh, very useful, just in terms of getting around the site, carrying things, monitoring things. Um, in terms of things that I've tried and not been too impressed by, pulling out machines, basically, for pulling out all the, all the prunings, not quite there yet, but it's sort of heading in the right direction. We'll see in a few years. Um, that's probably it, really. So that, there was, a, I have a follow-up. Well, it, this was going to be my final question because I thought it would be quite an interesting one, but it leads on quite well from what you've just said. Um, is the UK now finding and leading its own way in viticulture, or are we still very much copying other countries? I think aspects of it, we are finding our own way. Definitely, because we have a unique environment that we work in that is not really comparable with anybody anywhere else in the world uh, in terms of the weather, the climate, soil, the labour, the availability of machinery, like I said. So I think we are finding our way. But obviously, certainly in terms of the machinery that we use, we're always going to be following somebody else because there aren't people that are manufacturing the equipment in the UK yet um, and certainly not designing pieces of equipment to be used in vineyards. What kind of trellising systems do you use and why? Well, it's a, I use a single gear system uh, or it could be double gear. Um, you get the choice. Um, the reality is it's quite easy and cheap to maintain. It does the relevant job for the vines that I have. Um, it's proven to work in a lot of different environments. Um, so I'd say they're the main advantages. Um, it, it's probably the most used training system in the world, I think. Um, I might be wrong on that, but like I say, the, the ease of maintenance is a big thing and the ease of installation and the fact that um, it's quite easy to train your vines to. So there's, there's real time and labour costs involved that make it quite suitable for a lot of different vineyards. 
Have you tried any other crazy stuff like Geneva Double Kirsten or anything? <laughs> Not where I am currently. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever? So where where have you in other places that you trained? What other trellises systems have you used? Um, are there any that you would just vow to never go near again? Um, or are there any that you wish you could use, but the climate or soil or or um, you know, uh, the topography just isn't right? Uh, no is the answer to all those questions. <laughs> there's there's nothing that I wouldn't necessarily say don't use it. Um, I've tried a bit of Scott Henry in the past in places, and it's a little bit more complicated, requires a bit more experience. Um, obviously, when I was in the south of France, we had a lot of bush vines, so there was no trellising at all. Um, now, in terms of management, I'd love to do that, but <laughs> it doesn't really work in the UK because you need um, grape varieties that have very strong shoots that hold themselves up, and um, things like Grenache don't really work very well in the UK. <laughs> Not yet, not yet, at least. <laughs> uh, but now we're t- so I want to talk about pruning a little bit. How do you do pruning? Do you use uh, machine pruners or are you still small enough you can do um, do it all by hand? Um, do you remove all the prunings uh, for fungal reasons or do you like to keep them there for nutrients? Uh, what's your approach to it? So basically all, all the pruning is done by hand, obviously. Um, pretty much with electric secateurs nowadays. I don't think many people still use handheld ones. They can, you get a lot of uh, repetitive strain injury from it. Um, pre-pruning or pruning with machines, as you were, if, if, you, if you're trying to replace a cane and lay down a new cane, there isn't really much machinery available to use for it. You pretty much have to do it by hand. Um, like I said a bit earlier, there are some machines that help with the pulling out, but they're, they're not really that effective. Uh, so it's something that still has to be done by hand, pretty much, um, which is quite hard work. And there's, there's, you know, if you've got a lot of vines, it takes quite a long time. But I mean, going back to the disease thing and <clears throat> removing prunings, I don't. So I mulch them back into the vineyard. Um, in terms of a disease thing, I think if you if you control your disease throughout the season, you shouldn't need to worry about too much latent disease being left on the wood. Um, so that's not really a concern for me. Um, and I prefer to leave as much as I can in the vineyard because um, obviously the more you take out of the vineyard, the more you're stripping the vineyard of any potential nutrition and uh, any other thing that might be useful to you in the future. So following up from that, what kind of um, what diseases do you get? Uh, are you too young for stuff like trunk diseases, or are you seeing any of those coming through? Um, what are the main other pests and diseases do you see, and how do you tackle them? Well, trunk diseases, you can get them from when vines are very young. I haven't seen much in the UK, but I know there's various various bits of Utah and Esker knocking about in places. Um the reality is they're kind of fungal diseases which are going to enter the vines from making too many cuts and too many big cuts uh, on your vines. So you, you need to be aware of that when you're pruning. Um, sorry, Bob, my mind's gone blank. I can't remember the rest of the question. Oh, the rest of it was uh, what other pests and diseases do you get? Uh, so botrytis, obviously, because it's the UK. Um, must be a big one. Um, I presume you get some mildews. What other, What stuff do you deal with? Yeah, so the... the the main diseases are powdery and downy mildew and botrytis, um, but you can deal with them. They're not they're not something to worry about too much, you know. With the with the right management and the right kind of spraying and and what have you, it's nothing to 
really panic about too much. Um, obviously, the trunk diseases you need to be aware of to think about in, in the future and how it might impact. Um, in terms of pests, that's really dependent on where your vineyard is sited as such. So, you know, if you're in an area with a lot of deer, that could cause you a big problem. Badgers, rabbits can cause problems. Starlings, if you, you know, near harvest, if you have a lot of birds, that can be a big problem. But it's really dependent on where your site is. Now, so let's go back to mildew and botrytis because it is a sexy subject. What are the main sprays you use for it? Copper, obviously. Uh, where, how much you use? Do you use anything like trichoderma or any kind of the slightly more um, trendy uh, treatments? Or, uh, or is there anything else that you like spraying that you find works particularly well for mildew or botrytis? Uh, there's, a, there's a couple of products available to prevent downy mildew. Um, there's a few things that are preventative and some that are a bit curative. And I think there's there's one that's a proper eradicant, um, which is quite expensive. And so you can tend to keep that in your arsenal just in case, in case you have a problem with it. Um, copper works okay at dealing with it um it's quite expensive copper uh and it's not very good for operators either because it's quite carcinogenic um so i don't spray a significant amount of copper um the reality is with downy mildew is the critical time is preventing it getting in to around flowering so if you get your sprays on at the right time you're unlikely to be affected too much by it. Um, and later on in the season, when you get it on the leaves, it can affect the photosynthetic rate of the leaves, but it's not really going to damage the fruit, whereas earlier in the season it can be quite a big problem. Um, in contrast, powdery mildew, that's something you need to worry about probably a bit later on in the season, as it were. Um, and again, there's well, sulfur is quite effective against powdery mildew. There's a couple of other products that are available. Um Botrytis, again, we'll actually do a botrytis spray around bunch closure, which is pretty effective. Um, but really the management of those kind of diseases is less about putting on loads of chemicals and more about managing your canopy to actually limit the disease spreading and get, getting in and spreading in the vines. How do you uh, work that through into your calendar? Like, do you have and well, what kind of... Um tech do you have in the vineyard or is it a question of you just going out checking what the weather's like and wandering down um the, through yeah, the it's important to know it's important to know what the weather's doing <laughs> obviously if you don't have the right weather conditions for those diseases to, to develop you don't need to worry um if you do have the right conditions the real key is monitoring real extensive monitoring and and over time you get to know the vineyard site that you look after you know where the disease is going to start you know where there's more humidity a bit more moisture so you start your monitoring in those areas um but there's no specific kind of spray program where you're committed to doing anything at any particular time as it were it's very much more looking at the conditions each year and responding to to a the conditions and what you see in front of you are you ever tempted to go for organic um, or biodynamic certification? Uh, it's difficult in the UK, I'll be honest. Um, Would you want to if you could? No. 
No. <laughs> I thought we'd lost you for a second, but that's <laughs> that was just a nice pause. <laughs> no. Um, so I'll, I'll be honest, I don't know a great deal about biodynamics, um, so I can't really talk about that too much. Um, when I was in France, everywhere that worked was was organic vineyards. Um, now the reality is, is in, an, in an organic vineyard, if you have to spray you have to spray a lot of sulfur and a lot of copper very frequently. And they're pretty much all you've got really for dealing with serious disease outbreaks. Um, so I'd be concerned about it with the conditions in the UK about doing that. I mean, the reality is where I was in the South of France, it was hot and sunny all the time. So you didn't really get much disease. So it's quite easy to be organic. Uh, but I think it's a tough, it's a tough gig in the UK at the moment. Uh, and the reality is, is that the the eradicants that you get for 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 these diseases, um, they're quite expensive, but you don't need to use them very often. You might only use them once a season, and the volumes that you're putting in are quite minimal um, in terms of what you're actually putting in your spray tank. Whereas the amount of sulfur and copper that you have to put in to deal with the disease problems is quite substantial. So it's probably more expensive to be organic. And also the products that you're putting on, sulfur's quite a serious irritant. And like I said before, uh, copper can be carcinogenic. So from, from a health and safety point of view, even when you're wearing full PPE all the time, it's not that pleasant spraying sulfur and copper. So I don't really see what the benefit is of being organic from that point of view. What do you think the best eradicants on the market are? Are there any particular products, specific products that you um, think work very well? Um, not necessarily that you use, but which do you think are the best companies or best products out there? Yeah, so so the reality is with spraying in the UK is each year Wine GB produces a book called, um, well, the Green Book, because it's got a green cover, which lists the... <laughs> Approved products that you're allowed to that you're allowed to spray on vineyards in the UK. Um, there's not a lot of products in there, really not a lot. I think if you went to France and you had a look at the approved products for spraying in organic vineyards, it's about ten times as long as what we're allowed to spray in the UK in total, whether you're organic or not. Um, so there's restrictions on what you have, if you know what I mean, and also. That's really interesting. Even though it's not organic here, we've got fewer items to choose from. Yes. Okay. Yes. In terms of in terms of products that you can spray in your vineyard in the UK, it's quite limited. Oh, okay. And when you're spraying, obviously the the you have to rotate your products. But you can't spray the same. You know, every product will have a maximum amount that you're allowed to apply apply in on your vines each year, and. Generally, you can't have consecutive sprays of the same product because that's how stuff develops resistance. So really, you have to mix up your products. And if you've only got four or five products for spraying for downy mildew, that's it, really. <laughs> uh, so can anyone get this green book? Because I'd not heard of it before. And I've, um, I've spoken to YNGB for years, but I suppose I've never really thought to ask. Is this uh, downloadable? Like, uh, you you would you would probably be able to get access to it you, to be honest but i don't know it's whether 
whether you have to have a spray operator certificate or not, um, I don't know. I, I know you have to, I think you have to be a YNGB member, but you might be able to get a copy. Um, you know, I could certainly scan and let you have the record, um, certainly an older copy, um, like last year's kind of thing, because it's updated every year, if you know what I mean. Um, but it, it, it's quite limited what we can spray in the UK. Cool. Well, I will. Let's email. I'll email someone from YNGB after this. Get them on and grill them and see what we can <laughs> see what we can get out of them. <laughs> um, cool. So, uh, uh, right. Well, let's talk about um, English climate briefly. Um, I presume rain is the biggest problem. What about frosts? What do you have to deal with? Um, and how have you seen it change you know, since you've been working in vineyards? So you're quite right. Rain is quite a serious problem. <laughs> um, not just from a disease point of view, but from many other aspects. Uh, if you think about, if, if you're trying to drive tractors around the site and do work with them, if the ground's very wet, you end up with problems with compaction in the soil, you end up with mud everywhere, it gets a bit messy, it's more dangerous in terms of the equipment not working properly. Um, so if it rained a bit less, it would be good. I'll be honest though, since I've been, the sort of five years that I've been working in the UK viticulture, I have seen a different trend in terms of much wetter December and Januarys and hotter and drier summers. So in terms of when you need to work with machinery and stuff in the summer when it's dry, it's becoming less of a problem. And if you need to do stuff in the winter at all, it's more of a problem. Um, but the reality is, is in winter, you're pretty much pruning all the time. So you don't need to worry too much about that. Um, from a frost point of view, it changes every year um, where people get frosted and the severity of the frost. Um, it's not going away. It's definitely not going to disappear um, and it's probably going to get worse in some areas. So what's critical is having the right site in the right place, um, which is going to reduce your frost risk and then using whatever you can find to deal with the frost risk that you do get, um, whether that be candles or home blows or, you know, wh whatever you can just to keep moving the air around or try and keep it a little bit warmer. Cool. What do you use? I mean, or, or what have you used? Have you got a helicopter? No. <laughs> Would you like no. one? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> It, it would work fine. The problem is in the south of e southeast of England in the countryside, I, I suspect a lot of the residents would be complaining when you're flying around with a helicopter low at night. <laughs> um, certainly when when I, when I was in when I worked in New Zealand, we had um, permanent fixed boss fans that um, would automatically turn on when the temperature dropped to 0.5 a degree. Um, now obviously it was quite I was based in Marlborough, so it's quite an agricultural area. Um, so it wouldn't really bother too many people because most people who were involved in the industry, but it literally was like a load of helicopters flying around when they fired up. Uh, but in, term, in terms of what I use, I don't use anything because I don't get much frost. Right. Well, that's, <laughs> that's easy. <laughs> um, right. Let's talk about yield because, um, so it was interesting. We had uh, Mike Best was on here last week, um, and he was talking about that on average the UK has about like twenty five or thirty percent of the yield for sparkling wine um, production that you would get in Champagne. How do you um, how do you deal with yield? Are you always trying to maximise it? Does a smaller yield necessarily mean better quality? Um, and what are the biggest factors that um, affect yield in the UK? 
what yield did they get in Champagne? Um, four times the UK. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It was limited, isn't it? So I imagine they get the exact absolute upper limit <laughs> every year. But, That's true. Um, <laughs> and then. Uh, and then pretend not to get the rest. Uh, but I, 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 I don't want to be I'd sued be by anyone. I'd be interested to know an actual figure. <laughs> uh, well, hopefully Mike's listening and he can um, he can provide some data on that. But <laughs> but yeah, I mean, how do you how is it how do the yields compare with what the stuff you worked with here? How do they compare with elsewhere um, in terms of average? I guess uh, which um, you know which varieties do you fare better? Um, and how do you manage yields? And what do you go for? Okay, so as an example, in where I worked in New Zealand, the yield was probably four times the size of the UK, um, at least, but could have been a lot bigger in other places. When I worked in the south of France, working with old vines, producing Syrah and Grenache, a uh, uh, reasonably high quality, um, the yields were lower than ever anything I've seen in the UK. So what year, uh, um, uh, without giving away any company data of what you produce in the UK, what were your yields in, in New Zealand? <laughs> well, in New Zealand, we'd easily get 150 hectolitres a hectare. No, you, you might. <laughs> I'll need to think to translate that into tonnes per hectare or tonnes per acre. Or <laughs> There's lots of different ways of measuring yield. <laughs> Uh, okay, yes, but so in terms of the question, does a smaller yield necessarily mean higher quality? No, in my opinion. Um, I don't think so at all. The, the reality is is that it's all about balance. Um, it's all about balancing the yield to what the vine is capable of doing. Um, so the reality is if all other factors are equal, you should be able to increase your, should be able to increase your yield and increase the quality. So if there's the right nutrition in the soil, you've got the right pruning system, you're using the right equipment, you don't get hit by frost and things. So there's, there's a bit of luck there. But the reality is, is I think you should be able to increase your yield and increase the quality. Um, if you take fruit off a vine, so if you reduce the yield, but the vine has the capability of producing more, it will go into what's called a vigor cycle. So it'll start putting its energy into growing bigger stronger larger shoots that ends up causing more shade and prevents your sprays getting into hit the target area and then you're going to end up with more botrytis and that's going to reduce the quality um and opposite way if you leave too much fruit on there it's not going to grow enough leaf surface area to ripen the fruit so for me it's really about balance i don't see i can't see anything in the argument that reducing your yield is going to improve quality i think it's the wrong way to think about it have you so uh, do you think green harvesting doesn't work in general then i think it does work in the in the right situation but if you're trying to reduce the amount of fruit that you've got on the vine because the reality is you're you're trying to force the vine to make the other fruit better if you had the right trellising system the right leaf surface area the right nutrition in the soil the right availability of water there's no reason you should have to green harvest because if the vine is capable of ripening the larger amount of fruit it will ripen it to the right quality 
What do you think are the biggest causes of concern for global viticulture? Because um, I remember asking um, uh, David in um, uh, in Taylor's Port about this, and his face his face went white, and he said Flavus and and he was absolutely convinced that it was um, kind of the nemesis of the vineyards. But are there any big causes of concern growing that you see, um, either diseases or um, pests or climate change, whatever? What do you think the biggest um, causes for concern are for global viticulture, or are there any specific for the UK? Well, for global viticulture, I think you said a lot of it. Climate change is a massive problem, absolutely massive problem. Um, you know, even last summer and the summer before, I've seen pictures from vines in the south of France dying because it was just so hot and they literally had no water. Um, Australia's had problems with a lot of heat in the past, um, so definitely. Um, and obviously with climate change, the extremes of weather tend to get bigger so you're likely to get bigger frosts in the uk wetter winters drier and hotter summers um at the moment uk viticulture is quite well positioned i think to deal with all that um because we're just starting off and we don't need to worry so much about the water aspect um but i think for a lot of other people it is a big issue cool all right, well then let's let's go for um, a final optimistic one because I always like to end on an optimistic kind of note. Um, what do you think are the main causes for optimism, particularly in the UK for viticulture? How do you see it going? Um, do you think that the massive harvests of particularly things like 2018, are there definitely going to be routes to market for the wines made out of those? Um, do you think that the growth in viticulture is sustainable? Um, and Or do you think that, that you know UK wine is going to be a uh, worldwide thing, so we should be planting more. I think the sky's the limit, to be honest. Um, I think there's a lot of scope for increasing sales of English wine in the UK market alone. I think there's a lot of scope for increasing sales of English wine globally. Um, I definitely don't see that being a problem, um, especially as the focus in UK viticulture and UK wine production is very much on quality rather than quantity. So from my personal point of view, I think there's a big market to hit there and I think we're well positioned to go after it. Um, so I don't see any reason why we can't sell a lot more in the UK and we can't sell a lot more globally. What do you think the, um, the, the key um, varieties will be? So obviously we got our fizz, but do you think there's anything else that we should be planting in the UK that you that should do well? Like people say, have uh, Riesling in theory should do well, but people have never really cracked it as far as I know. Is there anything that people should be experimenting with? Is there anything that you've got in your back garden to see how it goes? Well, obviously, because the majority of the industry is dominated by producing sparkling wine, it's obviously going to be champagne varieties for the time being. I think as the climate does warm up and we do get drier, hotter summers, there is some real potential to look at some other stuff. Um, Riesling, maybe not. Um, Pinot Blanc's probably going to be quite interesting, I think, um, in the next few years. I think we produce quite a bit of Bacchus already, but I think Bacchus has still got a lot of potential because people don't really know about it. Um, so I'd say they're, they're Pinot Blanc and Bacchus are probably the most exciting things for, for still wine. I think red wine's going to be a challenge for the next 15 years in terms of getting the consistency of the product. Um, so I can't really see anything else coming in 
other than Pinot Noir for making red wine, inter- really interesting red wines, but we'll see. I'm sure somebody's trying something. Cool. And then, so as one final note, what is the one thing that you think everyone should know about UK viticulture that perhaps they don't? It's brilliant. <laughs> I was hoping for something more specific, but yeah, we can we can, we can go with that. <laughs> it, it's brilliant. We're, we're quite ambitious for a start. Um, there's a lot of people working in the industry that really know what they're doing, um, which is quite exciting. And a lot of people kind of trying to make the UK a kind of unique viticultural region if you know what i mean so we're not just trying to copy champagne and make a product that's the same as champagne we want to make a product that's similar to champagne but it's definitively english if you know what i mean and the same with the still wines so i think that's what's exciting we're trying to put our own mark on the world in terms of what we can actually achieve um and i think there's a lot of people about who are quite committed and interested in doing that cool well that sounds like a very nice note to end on um so yeah, uh, thank you so much for joining us, Tom. That was um, great stuff there for people who've not thought about UK uh, great growing before. Um, and yeah, uh, can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you for having me.